how is your attitude? It's a question. How is your attitude? Um, you know, I mention each week uh, that it's a good idea to have a journal, not just when you're watching the sermons, but just in general, when you're doing Bible study, when you're reading the Bible, it's a good idea to have a journal to write down your questions, to keep track of the things that you learn. Um, it'll help you grow in the Lord. And what I've been doing is I'm going through a lot of sermons from the last four or five years because I'm coming across the notes from those sermons. What I'm doing is, is I've got so many journals. I'm now transcribing them uh, and putting them into digital formats so they're easier for me to reference. So I'm typing them into my computer a little bit each day. And as I'm coming across these old sermons, I realize that many of them have messages that are uh, important that I want to share again. So this is one that I preached on a few years ago. I've changed the sermon a bit. I've changed the name, but uh, it's very important for the times in which we live. And it's called, How is Your Attitude? And it's based on Ephesians 6, verse 7, which from the Christian Standard Bible reads, uh, let me pull this up on the screen, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. So we start seeing the perspective that I'm going to try to convey as we go through this message. We are to serve with a good attitude, serving the Lord not serving people. We're going to help people. We're going to serve people. We're going to do everything we can to shine the light of Jesus Christ into the world by caring for people. But ultimately, we do everything from the attitude of gratitude to the Lord in serving him. And that's what we're going to see. But let me ask this question. Why preach on attitude right now? Anybody watching this in the times in which we live has to admit that we live in a very challenging, crazy, and insane time. So why preach on attitude right now? So I just want you to look around at the world and it'll help answer this question. Uh, consider social media. Hey, Bruce. Hey, Carrie. Thank you for watching, you guys. Um, so why preach on attitude? Look around at the world and it'll answer this question. Look at social media. There's so much negativity and there's so much arguing on social media, whether it's between uh, religious groups or it's between political groups or it's between people that believe we should be wearing masks and those that don't, those that are angry at the government, those that support the government, Black Lives Matter, those that support that movement, and those that don't, those that are racist and those that aren't. There's so much tension that just bleeds out through social media. And then mass media. Uh, mass media right now is very negative. Uh, Really what it comes down to, hey, mom and dad, thanks for watching you guys. What it comes down to is we can't trust the mass media. And I'm going to get into that more as it goes forward. You see? So why preach on attitude? Why is attitude important? And to reiterate, if we look at the world, we look at social media, we look at mass media, uh, we start seeing that it's not easy to maintain a good attitude. Uh, I want you to look at societal decline. No one watching this can argue that our society, especially here in America, is in a radical state of decline that's been happening more and more over time. But now it seems to be accelerating because of the things that are going on around us. Um, we see racism carried out through this BLM movement to an extent that we never thought we'd witness in America. 
It's crazy what's happening with this, the violence that's taking place all over the country, the riots that are taking place, and, and, and often nothing's done to stop them as they destroy personal and public property, claiming to be taking a stance that Black Lives Matter. But when you really look at what they teach and what they preach, they're actually preaching racism and putting down every other race. And we can get into that later, but it's very sad and it's very scary what's happening with the riots right now. Corporatism. My friend and I were just talking about this the other day. So many small businesses now are either completely out of business or being forced out of business as corporations just absorb more and more market share. If you're interested in seeing how dangerous corporations can become and the power that they can obtain through lobbying and through political influence, check out the Monsanto Protection Act or the Vaccine Injury Act, especially as there's this obsession in many circles right now to, to come up with a vaccine against you know supposedly COVID-19. Think about and research the fact that there's never been a vaccine that's effective against a virus and that vaccine producing companies are exempt from any from any legal actions resulting from the effects of any vaccines that they produce. This law is so sinister that if you take your child, they're given a vaccine and that vaccine has a, a reaction in them and harms them physically or maybe kills them, you cannot go after the producer of that vaccine legally. That, that's on the books. That's legal. So that's that's how severe corporatism has gotten. Now, as I go through this list, I, don't, I want you to understand, and those that have heard me preach before know that I often like to start off on a dark note because it helps lead into why we need to focus on God's word and why we need to be focusing on Christ. Suicide rates. When I first wrote this sermon a few years ago, suicide rates were on the increase. Since this COVID-19 thing, they've gone even steeper. Suicide increases because people are stuck often in a mental state of hopelessness, an attitude of hopelessness and despair and fear. And they think there's no way out. They think there's no way to overcome what they're dealing with. So they end it. Suicide rates increase. Addiction. We have the Recovery Reformation Ministry. And addiction has been increasing since the 50s or 60s, just steadily. And again, it's the same reasons as suicide. People just want to check out and not have to face what's going on in the world around them. Their attitude consumes them. Pervading apathy and depression in society and the church. We've seen this again increase year after year after year. People are apathetic. They don't care. They don't have any drive. They don't have any goals. They don't have any vision for their life. They just sort of move along mindlessly, turning on the TV, turning on video games, doing drugs, whatever it is, to make themselves numb instead of going out and trying to have an effect in the world. The suicide rate of pastors has been increasing steadily and, and increasing more rapidly over recent years. And that goes back to the thing I talk about all the time. 90% of the Christian church is not saved. 90% of the pastors in the pulpits are probably not even saved. And they're teaching a false gospel. So they don't have any comfort from the truth of the gospel because they don't even know it. You see? 
So suicide rates incre are increasing in the church and even among pastors. Now let's look at this COVID-19 thing. And this is something I have not really addressed that much in the last few months that we've been dealing with this issue, but it plays heavily into the topic of attitude that I'm preaching on today. And if I say things that offend you or that you don't agree with, I would ask you just have an open mind, listen to what I'm saying, and maybe take some time and research these things that I talk about. Because I don't put these points out lightly. I put them out from a very grave position of concern for what's happening in the world. And I can tell you since the beginning, when this thing started, we have been fed as steady streams of lies and propaganda. You know, when this started, I was in Africa, I was in Kenya working with our churches over there. And my wife and my son and my friends were telling me that America was just spiraling out of control. You couldn't buy toilet paper. The shelves were being emptied. People were in a panic. Everybody was buying these masks that they had to wear. Everybody was afraid that this horrific virus that the news was putting out as being just absolutely lethal was just going to sweep through society and destroy millions of lives. And I couldn't get my head around it because in Kenya, it really wasn't that big of a deal yet. But what I, what I will say is when I finally came, got back to the United States and I landed in Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., they had CNN on all the TV screens. And after about 30 to 45 minutes of sitting there watching this, I just had the sense that th this isn't real. They're making this into something far more than what it needs to be. For one reason, I knew that because it was on CNN. I've studied mainstream media and politics for years. And, and believe me, when I look at anything coming off of CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, I automatically just assume it's lies until it's proven true, because that has they've shown that that's the way to look at that over the years. But the way that they were presenting it and the fear that they were trying to put across, putting up you know, numbers of deaths, numbers of infections, like it was a sporting event. And they're still doing that to this day. I knew, I just had the sense something wasn't right about it. So I really began, began researching to try to figure out what was really true about this COVID-19 crisis. And what we've seen happen since this started is what? Rapidly increasing attacks on individual liberties and freedoms. No one can argue that. Blatant attacks on individual liberties and freedoms since this whole crisis started a few months ago. And now what we're starting to see through the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements that are happening and, and, and battles that are taking on within our own uh, government here in the United States is an overt move toward communism. And that's another topic that I'll probably start addressing more as, as we move into the coming months. Communism is not something new in America. It's something that's been steadily increasing and it's a plan that's been taking place over years. But now what we see is, is, a, is a rapid increase in this effort to bring in communist ideology, which is evil and directly contrary to the doctrine of Christianity. Study the history of communism and you will be studying evil at levels that you can't even comprehend until you really start looking into it. What's really interesting about this topic of communism is when I was leaving on that my last trip to, to Kenya, and I was flying from Denver to, to Frankfurt for a connecting flight. I sat next to a woman on the plane who was raised in communist Russia. And now she lives in America. She was able to get out of that. And she lives in America. Her and her husband own a trucking company in Southern California. And she was saying how America is rapidly 
becoming what Russia was before the fall of communism. She said it angers her and her friends from Russia that have that have migrated and her husband because they see this slide into communist ideology that they've already suffered through and lived through. And she said they try to warn people and nobody wants to listen to them. Their, her wisdom was so valid and so important. And I enjoyed the conversation so much that she said uh, it's almost impossible for them to run their trucking business in California. Why? Because of government regulations, making it so restrictive through taxation, through regulation, through overreach, of, through government overreach uh, oversight, that they were trying to get their company moved to another state. They were probably going to go to Texas where they thought they'd have more freedom to run their business. But she said, she said, it just saddens us that we've been through this system of communism. We've seen it kill family members. We've seen people suffer under it for years. And now the country that we fled to because we thought it was a country of freedom is taking on the same ideologies. The reason that conversation was so important for me is because right after that, like I said, this whole COVID thing started coming in. And now we see these ideologies being pushed openly. It's not even secretive what's happening. It's horrifying. Churches in California can't meet right now, supposedly because it's too dangerous because of COVID-19, but other groups can meet. In Nevada, casinos can have thousands of people in the casinos, but churches can only have 50 people. So we see this outright attack on religion. That is communist ideology. John MacArthur's church in Southern California gave notice in the last couple of days that they're rejecting government overreach and they will meet for worship, even though the governor of California has, has, has put a moratorium and said that churches cannot meet. He's put a mandate in place. MacArthur's church finally woke up and said, enough is enough. This is not constitutional. We will go ahead and meet. Now, what I heard this morning, and I don't know if this is true yet. I'm going to try to verify it after the service today. There's a rumor that the state claimed they're going to try to cut off the electricity to his church. Why would they do that? Because if MacArthur's church has the guts to gather together and to meet for worship, the best thing that can happen by the true Christian church is for other churches to immediately in California do the same thing and start a flood of pushback against unconstitutional government oversight and to make a stand that we should be making as Christians. And that's a topic I'm going to get into later is when do we draw the line and we begin civil disobedience? If we had had a proper understanding of this as a church generations ago, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. So many Christians think, think that because Romans 13 says you are to be subject to the governing authorities, that you're just supposed to agree with anything a leader tells you. That is not what Romans 13 teaches. So we will delve into that more going forward. It's very, very important for the times in which we live. So it was refreshing to see that John MacArthur's church was going to make this stand. I'm hoping other churches make the same stand and they gather in spite of what this pretty much communist governor is telling them they can't do and start making a stand in the name of Christ because it has to be done. Will the church cut off their electricity or the state? We'll see. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Let me ask you this. It's absurd. Every time you see any kind of a public gathering, everybody's six feet apart the social distancing guideline. Everybody just accepts now that that's normal. You have to stay six p 
feet from the nearest human being, or there's a chance you're going to, you know, possibly spread the virus to them or pick up the virus. If you think that's a good idea, are you aware of the fact, and this is why research is more important, is so important. Are you aware of the fact that the idea of social distancing to combat a virus was an idea that was thought up by a high school student, I think it was back in the 70s or 80s, for a science fair. They were studying virology, how viruses move. This kid came up with the idea, well, maybe if everybody stood a certain distance apart, it would control the spread of the virus. Sounds like maybe it's a good idea. It's never been tested scientifically. So this whole idea of social distancing comes from the mind of a high school kid years ago. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And everybody just takes it for granted as if it's scientific. It's not. But look at what it's doing to people. Folks, people need to have the support, the nurturing, the care, the love of other people around them. We need to be able to hug, shake hands, and show support for other human beings. Putting a mask on people, social distancing them, does away with that. Now, if this virus is truly lethal and there is a very real chance of death, I could understand those measures, but it's showing that that is not the case. So these measures, based on what has happened over the preceding months, are not justified based on the truth that's coming forth. And I'll share some more along that point right now. I think it was last week or the week before, there was a news report. It was on ABC or NBC, and they said 85 children dead this week from COVID-19. I think it was either in Florida or Texas. That was the headline. It was in the paper. It was a big story, 85 children dead. And they're saying infants, like under two years old, this week because of COVID-19. That story has been proven to be 100% false. At best, once they researched that story, they proved that that may have been kids that have died from COVID-19, supposedly, since the beginning of this pandemic. A totally false headline. Why would they put that out there? Because it scares people to death. It gets people to stay apart from other people. It gets people to put the mask on. You see, it furthers this agenda of fear. <laughs> Last week, there was uh, news that in San Antonio, Texas, they were bringing in trucks, refrigerated trucks to use as morgues because the hospitals were so overrun, so many people were dying from COVID-19 that they were going to have to start putting the bodies of the dead, the victims of COVID-19, in these refrigerated trucks. They did this a few months ago in New York. I think it was back in April. And I remember when they did that, a friend of mine who lives in New York literally filmed with his phone the TV report saying this certain hotel in New York or this certain hospital in New York was completely overrun. They had to bring in these trucks to haul out the bodies. The emergency room is packed, blah, blah, blah. The hospital was beyond capacity. He walked down the street to that hospital, walked into the emergency room. No one was there. He asked the nurses. They said, no, there's hardly anything going on because they won't let us do any kind of elective uh, procedures. So there's hardly anybody in the hospital. He talked to the EMTs. They said it was slower than usual. So he proved that that was a flat out lie. They set up these 
hospitals in Central Park, supposedly for the thousands of victims of COVID-19. Nobody was served at those hospitals because they weren't needed. They brought in a mercy ship to New York Harbor that was supposedly going to be full of victims of COVID-19. It quietly moved out a few weeks later because it was not needed. But the fear that these news stories created has worked very well in getting people to do what they want them to do. Now, these morgue trucks in Texas, an article was printed showing these trucks supposedly being brought to hospitals in Texas to store all these dead bodies in. The problem is the picture that they used on the article was in a major city in the middle of winter. This was a week ago. It's the middle of summer. If you look in the picture, it's winter. The picture is one of the pictures from New York. And again, one of my friends who lives in Texas, went to four different hospitals the day that the story broke. And he said none of these hospitals was even close to capacity. The emergency rooms were nearly empty. The nurses, none of them had masks on, were not social distancing because they know this whole thing is really more than is being made into something far beyond what it should be. And like I said, if you don't agree with what I'm saying, I'm sorry, but have an open mind and consider researching what the news is telling you. And you'll see why I'm sharing this with you and how this applies to the question, how is your attitude as we move forward in this message? Again, two months ago, hospitals all over the country were claiming that they're beyond capacity. There's videos that were on YouTube of multiple individuals with their cell phones going to these hospitals and showing that there was hardly anyone there. Cedar sinai hospitals in Palm Springs, all these places were supposedly overrun. People went out and checked. It was not the case. So the, the stories were proven to either be outright lies or completely blown out, blown out of proportion. Right now, everybody's arguing online about this mask thing. Should we wear masks? Should, should we not wear masks? Do they work? Do they not work? Folks, I've really been looking at this one closely the last couple of weeks. And one thing I've noticed, there was an interview with a, a mayor who had made a mask mandate a couple of weeks ago. They were interviewing her. She had her mask on. The whole time she's doing the interview, she's adjusting her mask as she's talking. It's falling down. What do they tell you? Don't touch your face. Anybody knows that. During flu season, when the flu virus could be going around, which is really what we're dealing with here, is a low-level flu virus, you're not always messing with your face. You're keeping your hands clean. Masks are making people constantly obsessed with the mask and their face. So they're actually exposing themselves to more virus. This is again this is this is my opinion on this but I but I've noticed it. Yesterday I went to the store where we where we live there's a mask mandate. They said you have to wear a mask wherever you whenever you go anywhere in public. But there's a clause in that mandate. I've printed it out that states if if you have any kind of a medical condition um, that, that that could cause a problem with you don't have to wear a mask. Well years ago I was uh, I had high blood pressure. I manage it with diet and exercise, but I talked to uh, my doctor, who's a family member. He's totally against this mask thing. He said, if you had any kind of a cardiac issue, any kind of a lung issue, anything like that, masks are not a good idea because they do affect your oxygen levels. So you should not be wearing them. And he said, especially against something like this, because it's not that deadly of a, of a virus. So that the idea of wearing a mask, it caused more problem than what you're trying to protect yourself from. So when I went into this store yesterday, the lady said, you have to wear a mask. I said, my doctor advises against it. And she said, OK, you have to show this card when you check out or they won't let you you know, pay for your groceries. 
it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen. She gives me a little plastic card. I got my groceries. I was the only one in the store without a mask. People were looking at me like I was a terrorist walking around. I went out. I did self-checkout. I paid for my groceries and I handed this lady this card. What purpose does that serve? What I'm trying to get across, folks, is we got to start thinking about what we're doing. Do these things make sense? Are we causing more harm than good? This is why attitude is important. And one point I want to make is I don't wear a mask from rebellion. I'm not doing it to be a bad guy. I have a very specific reason for doing it. I do it because I care and I'm gravely concerned, not at all about COVID-19. I have no concerns at all about COVID-19 because it's shown uh, all the stories have just fallen apart and all the claims that have been made against it. What I'm concerned about is our future and the future of our children and the future of our grandchildren. If we don't start as a society testing the things that we're told, realizing that the mainstream media really cannot be trusted and asking those important questions. Am I doing more harm than good? You see, the easiest thing to do, you guys, is just to go along with what they say, put on a mask, social distance. That's easy. But when you really start thinking about it, and you start doing the research and you realize all the lies that have been told, you got to start asking yourself these questions. Why are they lying about the death numbers, about the infection rates? Why are they putting stories out that are shown to cause horrific amounts of fear in people and then the stories are proven to be false? If it was really deadly, they wouldn't need to do that. But what harm might we be, might, might we be doing if we're not testing these things that we're told? and going along with what we're told we should be doing. See, and this is why I was glad to hear John MacArthur's church finally sit up, because they realized, no, we can't go along with this anymore, because what they're telling us isn't based on truth, science, and fact. They started having the correct attitude towards this. That's why the sermon today is, how is your attitude? It's very, very important right now. Now, another thing I want to ask you is, when was the last time you went into a store or a restaurant, if you even can, or a coffee shop. Again, I had I met with my friend Bruce the other day for coffee. We had to go to a park because there's nowhere you can go and just meet and have a nice cup of coffee. You see? When was the last time you were out in a public place, in a store, in a market, and people were smiling at you? People were laughing. People were having an in-depth conversation. That's all gone away. Folks, those are things we should treasure. We should not sacrifice those things. Those are the things that bring joy to life, you see? And the last point on that that I'm going to make is that the poor around the world, because of this COVID thing, are suffering and dying in far greater numbers because of what's going on with COVID-19. And I call it the COVID-19 hoax because of the research I've done on it. Is there a virus? Yes. Have people died from it? I honestly don't know because they've fudged the numbers so much and they're, they've shown so many suicides and car wrecks where the people's death are labeled as, as, as COVID-19. They've proven that. Who knows if anybody's actually died from it or if it's just all fic fiction. But what I'm saying is if it was as severe as they said, why are they lying about it? But the thing that concerns me is the people all over the world that are now starving, homeless, and suffering because of these lockdowns. So again, I'll ask you, how is your attitude? 
How is your attitude? Why should I preach on the topic of attitude? Because it's not easy to have a proper, good, biblical attitude when the majority around you is trapped in fear, anger, and ignorance. Folks, we're influenced by those around us. We're influenced by the words and the attitudes of others. And it's hard to maintain a good attitude when the majority of the people around you are trapped in fear and they're angry and they're moving forward from a position of ignorance because of their fear and their anger. So it's important as Christians that we strive to maintain a good attitude. So how important, I'm going to ask these questions, how important and powerful is our attitude? And I'm talking to Christians in our own lives and how we live them. How, is import, how important and powerful are, are our attitudes in the lives of others and of those that we influence? How important is our attitude in our witness for the gospel? People have asked me, okay, you go to these places, you don't wear a mask. Sometimes you're the only person in the store. What do you do if someone confronts you? I try to smile at them. Someone has trouble with their groceries. I try to help them. Try to make those people realize that you're not doing it to be a rebel. If they see that you, you're doing it from a position of care, maybe it'll make them think. That's the attitude I'm talking about here. You see? So how do we control and maintain a proper positive attitude? In spite of the pressures against it. Now, we've all heard the cliche, the saying, an attitude of gratitude. It sounds cliche, but is it biblical? Is an attitude of gratitude biblical? I used to hear the saying much more when I was younger, count your blessings. You don't hear that much nowadays. Remember my grandmother used to say that all the time, count your blessings. That's one of those sayings from yesterday that we should bring back, count your blessings. If things are weighing down on you and you're tired of what's going on and you're tired of seeing everyone in a mask trudging along like zombies and you're tired of what the news media is putting out and you're tired of every time the radio comes on or the TV, the first word is death, infection, COVID-19. Best way to combat that and to keep that from affecting your attitude is to be grateful to count your blessings. That's how we fight back against that. Now, I want to give you guys a couple definitions here so we understand what attitude and gratitude are. The definition of attitude from the Oxford Dictionary says, opinion or way of thinking, way of thinking, the way you think, and the behavior reflecting this can also mean a bodily posture. Again, if you're walking around and you're fearful and you're angry and you're hunched over, that conveys a negative attitude. If you're happy and you're shining with the light of Christ, that's the attitude we need to strive for. That bodily posture in this definition also refers to the position of an aircraft, spacecraft, in relation to specified directions. If you've ever watched a space movie and a space you know, vehicle, the, the shuttle or whatever is coming back into Earth's orbit, they'll talk about the attitude of the spacecraft. Because if the attitude is too steep, it could burn up going through the atmosphere too fast. If, it's too, if the attitude is too shallow, it could bounce off the, off the atmosphere. What is our attitude? as we move through space and time. What influences our attitude? Just think about that.
The Greek word for attitude is phronesis. It means mental action or activity, intellectual or moral insight, prudence, wisdom. Now, what did I talk about earlier? I made some pretty hardcore arguments against what's going on and what, what we're being told. But how do you either accept or reject the arguments that I put forth through mental action or activity? Don't just take what I say for granted. Like I say, if I preach something and it seems like it goes against God's word, if it's contrary to scripture, test it. Pastors are just people. We'll, we'll say things that are wrong. If something seems unbiblical, go to the Word. Test it. See if I did say something unbiblical. Let me know about it. Any good pastor is going to say, you know what? You're right. I took that out of context. That is contrary to doctrine. But that takes mental action or activity. It takes intellectual or moral insight. It takes prudence, and it takes wisdom. These are the same things we should be applying to what we're being told by our government and the media right now. Why especially should these things be tested? Because there's so much at stake. Our individual freedoms and liberties are being attacked and stripped away. Are we not going to test the reasons behind that? Proper attitude tells us that we should. The word phronesis comes from the, the root word phroneo, to exercise the mind, to entertain or have a sentiment or opinion, to be mentally disposed, to interest oneself in, with concern or obedience, set the affection on and regard, savor, or think, to exercise the mind. Folks, the point I'm trying to get across is if you're going to have a proper attitude towards anything, it's not for the lazy. It's for the thinking person. Like I said before, Christianity is not a lazy religion. We don't believe out of sloth. We believe in Christ. We strive to be conformed to his image. Why? Because we look at things not just with our heart, but we look at things from our heart through an intellectual process. The most in-depth, intellectual, stimulating pursuit you can ever embark on is the study of Christian doctrine because it explains everything. Folks, this isn't anything too general that I'm trying to say, but when it comes right down to it, the only true reality is the reality that we have in Jesus Christ. Anything outside of that is a false reality. Exercise your mind. Engage in mental action or activity. Strive for intellectual and moral insight, for prudence, and for wisdom in everything from a Christian perspective. That's our attitude that we have towards the world. The definition of gratitude from the Oxford Dictionary is being thankful. It's appreciation. It's from the Greek word eucharistia, which means thankful, thankfulness, thanksgiving. So again, I'm going to ask these questions. How important and powerful is our attitude in our own lives and how we live them, in the lives of others and of those we influence, in our witness for the gospel? How important is our attitude in these things? Now consider this. An attitude can be like a cancer or it can be like a comfort. A bad attitude can literally be like a cancer that consumes a person and destroys them. Or it can be like a comfort that in spite of situations and circumstances and challenges, their attitude comforts them. An attitude can be like a vampire 
or it can be like a transfusion. We've all known those people with a bad attitude. And the minute you come around them, what happens? You feel your energy draining out. You spend five minutes in conversation with them and you're exhausted. You feel like you have to go take a nap. They're like a vampire. They, they just suck the life out of other people. But a, an attitude can also be like a transfusion. When you go to that person who is, a, who is, I guess you could say, a spiritual vampire, and instead of being affected by them, you affect them and you transfuse them with the energy that we only have in Jesus Christ. That's why he says we're like rivers of living water. That's the great, uh, one of the fantastic things to study about Christianity. The more grace that we pour into others, the more the Lord pours into us. The more we expend, the more we're blessed with. So you could ask yourself, am I going to be a vampire or a transfusion to people? You see? An attitude can be a curse or it can be a blessing. Is your attitude going to be something that curses you and destroys your life or something that blesses you? The key to what so much of what people struggle with comes down to attitude. Diet is a great example of this. Diets don't work unless they come from a healthy attitude. I'm just using this one example. It's much easier to control what you eat if you control what you think. See? If you're struggling with health issues, with diet issues, with whatever it is, don't look for a program. This goes to addiction too. Don't look for some new fad diet or whatever it is. How do you change your thinking? If your thinking is in line, the things that you struggle with will automatically come back to being in line to where they need to be, to the narrow path. You see? It comes back to attitude. So many people seem to live lives of, uh, with a negative attitude because of their past. I see this a lot in the recovery thing. The negativity of the past infects the present and therefore destroys the future. If you want to see this, go to AA meetings. You'll see guys sitting in AA meetings that have been sober for 20, 30, 40 years. They are absolute miserable wretches because they have been carrying this baggage for all those years. They've never had the truth shine into their lives that their sin is, can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. So they're just constantly trying to work a program to try to atone and stay sober while they're identifying as still being an alcoholic. Folks, that it's one of the saddest things I used to see is these old, they called them old timers in AA. And a lot of them would put on a persona like, I'm successful, I got the nice car, everything's together. But then you spend some time with these guys, you're like, they're just a wreck because everything they believe in is fake. It's not real. So really their past is destroying their present and their future. It's infecting their present and destroying their future. Sadly, in the modern church, our attitudes may be affected more in a negative way than in a positive way by professing Christians. This one's huge for Christians today to understand. Because 90% of the church, at least in America, is apostate and void of the gospel, true Christians will often spend most of their lives just being attacked. See, and again, I'll go back to John MacArthur. He's, I heard an interview with him once, and he said, I never dreamed I would spend so much time in my career defending the faith against other Christians because he was being attacked. 
folks, I can tell you from being in ministry, that's a large portion of what you do. Now, the only time I'm attacked from the world is when I expose AA and, and, and programs like CR and the 12 steps, because those are worldly programs. People don't like them to be attacked. But when it comes to Christianity, most of the attacks come from professing Christians. That's just the way it is. And it's because the vast majority of the church is more worldly than godly. But we, even in that, there's a blessing. All the negativity makes those who are positive and genuine and true a much richer and more appreciated blessing. See, when you're surrounded by all that we're dealing with right now, when you come across a person that's truly a Christian, who's truly in love with Christ, striving to be conformed to his image, serving him, you just have peace, you have joy, because you know, with a tr you're, you know you're with a true brother or sister in Christ. I'm blessed with that richly. I have people around me who absolutely love the Lord. Like I said, I just had coffee with my friend Bruce the other day, and an hour and a half went by like that because we see eye to eye. We're on the same path. We have the same mission in life. You see? When I talk to my sister and my brother-in-law, same thing. My, and my niece and nephew, my son and my wife, and my close friends, my parents, we're all on the same wavelength. We all have the same desire. We're all in the same narrow path. So those relationships shine more brightly because they're contrasted against the darkness of the negativity that we often get. So even that negativity, God turns into a blessing by making the good shine brighter, you see? So we must make a conscious choice to not allow negativity and negative people to influence us. We do have this choice. And this really gets into the topic of forgiveness. Quite often people will be harmed by other people and they think to forgive them means they have to forgive them and then have a relationship with them. No, you forgive someone, they owe you nothing. That doesn't mean you have to be around that person anymore. You do not have to tolerate negativity. It will affect your attitude. Some of the worst attitudes I've witnessed have been among the addicted and the homeless. Quite often, it seems the bad attitude is not the result of circumstances, but a major cause of it. See, quite often you meet people that are in addiction, they're homeless, and we think, well, the reason they're so negative and they have such a bad attitude is because of their situation, their circumstances, their conditions. But when you really spend time with a lot of these people, you realize, no, their conditions, circumstances, and situations are because of the attitude. You see? That's what caused it. And then it just amplifies it. But the beauty of that, again, a contrast on the flip side, many who, who have been through terrible situations and circumstances possess beautiful attitudes. As a Christian, you will meet Christians who just shine with the light of Christ. And then you hear their life story and it brings tears to your eyes because they have been through so many trials, so many struggles, suffered such horrendous loss. And they shine with the joy of Christ. Their attitude is blown open with more light. It shines brighter because of what they've been through. Why? Because they're in Christ. Again, that contrast between the light and the darkness, between a good attitude and a bad attitude. You see? I like to run. I like to hike. And I'll tell you, that's one of the greatest tests of attitude. One of the greatest tests of attitude is the simple act of going out and running. If you're negative, if you're down, if you're tired, 
the last thing you want to do is go out and go through the pain of running. Pain always, running always starts out painful. And then you get to a point where you loosen up, your muscles warm up, and all of a sudden it becomes a joy. But you, you just got to accept the fact almost always running is going to start out as a painful process. So attitude is very important in that practice, in the, in, in the practice of running. Attitude is very important. But I can tell you that I received great inspiration, motivation, and positive attitude from others who strive and push themselves. If I'm negative and I'm down and I haven't run for a few days, I haven't worked out, and I'm feeling lazy, that's when you have a choice. Am I going to continue down that road or am I going to find something to adjust my attitude? So you pick up a book that's going to adjust your attitude, usually the Bible. But when it comes to running, sometimes I'll just go to a website of somebody that's a successful runner or marathon runner or whatever, read what they write, and it will lift my spirits. It will motivate me. You see? You can adjust your attitude easily by what you're feeding your head is what it comes down to and what you're feeding your heart. And folks, you must reject cultural norms. Our culture will tell you that when you reach 40, your health's going to start declining. You're not going to be as active. Things are going to start falling apart. So you got to start going to the doctor. You got to start looking at being on a drug for high blood pressure, for this, for that. Like I said, the last, I'm 56 years old. The last time I went to an actual doctor, like I said, my doctor now is my wife's uncle. He's a holistic practitioner. If I need advice, I call him. I haven't set foot in a general practitioner's office in 16 years, because the last time I went, the guy did a physical. He said I was basically in good shape, but I was having high blood pressure. So they wanted to put me on medication. So I said, well, what happens if I go on the medication? You'll probably have to be on it for the rest of your life because your system just becomes used to it. But then there's all these side effects. I said, now I'll watch my diet and what will I do? Run. That's when I started running. So now if, if I check my blood pressure and it's up, I realize I need to meditate. I need to read things that are going to calm me. I need to get out and run and raise my heart rate. Because if I raise my heart rate, the more I do that, the better my heart rate is going to be when I'm resting and the lower my blood pressure is going to be. You have these choices. That's the attitude that you have to take. You see? Where the cultural norm is go on the blood pressure medication, start getting going to your doctor more, get on these prescriptions, this prescription. That's what our culture tells us to do. It gives us, it paints a picture. And again, I go back to the media I, and I'll just tell you flat out, I hate mainstream media because of what it does to people. And if you pay attention to it, it will tell you how you're supposed to age and how you're supposed to act as you grow older. Reject that and throw it away. You do not have to be anything other than who you want to be and who the Lord is making you to be. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. See, there's a great book. I've got it right here. It's called The Blue Zones. This isn't a Christian book. You want to get this book? You want to learn about how to diet and how to eat right and how to have a proper attitude? That's a book that studies people that are over 100 years old all over the world, not just over 100 years old, but 100 years old and active, living life joyfully, living life well. That's one of those books that will adjust your attitude. You see, I love it. So the important question, how does our attitude affect our witness for the gospel? 
as Christians, what do we do? Like I've said before, as Christians, we're all in ministry. I'm in ministry. I'm a pastor. I run the churches in Kenya, I run Recovery Reformation. I got a lot of stuff going on that I do in ministry. There are people that support what I do. Their ministry is to use their gifts to help further my ministry. We're all in ministry together. We all have an equal share and an equal purpose in what we're doing. Every Christian is involved in ministry, and that ministry is the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's very important that we understand how our attitude affects our witness for the gospel. And I will say, of all people, Christians have the least excuse for having a bad attitude. I shouldn't even have to explain this. Christians have the least excuse for having a bad attitude. The gospel is the ultimate reason for a healthy, positive attitude. Look at Luke 12, 32 through 34. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of the hardest perspectives for anybody in this world to grasp is that if we love the Lord so much, we are so focused on his kingdom, our heart is so planted in his kingdom, that things of this world mean so little that we'll just give them up to further the cause of his kingdom, the cause of the gospel, because that's where our treasure is. You see, that's where our treasure is. So many of the traits and characteristics that we are taught to have in scripture nurture and go hand in hand with a positive attitude. Look at this, look at this verse, 1 Thessalonians, one of my favorites, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Paul says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I can't tell you how many times in ministry, I, especially in the Recovery Reformation ministry, I have had someone come to me and say, I just struggle with knowing what God's will is. I don't know what to do with my life because I don't know what God's will is. This short little verse answers those questions. You are to rejoice always. You're to pray without ceasing. And you are to give thanks in all circumstances, because that's God's will for you. And everything give thanks. That's simply that. Because if that's what you're doing, everything else you struggle with, every ever struggle that you have against bad attitude or whatever it is, will be dealt with if that's what you're striving for. That's God's will for you. You see? Now, the verse that I started with today was Ephesians 6, 7. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Now, remember I talked about situations, circumstances, conditions, regardless of whatever condition you're in, you should strive to have an attitude of gratitude. You should serve the Lord with a good attitude. Now, let's look at uh, Ephesians 6 and 7 and put it into context. This is what really makes what I'm talking about today interesting. If we move forward, Paul's writing this, we move forward to verses 18 through 20. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So his concern is that they pray all the time. And with that in view, that they're concerned with the saints, the church. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth 
to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. He, so he wants prayer that he can be effective in his ministry. But look at verse 20 for the, the really powerful contextual verse here. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He's in prison. Looking at a death penalty for preaching the gospel. And what does he say? Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Pray at all times in the spirit. And with that in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and partition for all the saints. You see? Folks, that's why I love what I do. Because, like I said, I'm in ministry. I have others that are in ministry that help me do what I do. This is the biggest help they give me because I know when I'm in Kenya or I'm doing whatever I'm doing engaged in the cause of the gospel, that their prayers are surrounding me and helping me and guiding me. You see? And I'll tell you, there's been times where my faith has been depleted. I have nothing left. Challenges are over my head. And their prayers help bring me through. Their, their encouragements. You see? That's what true Christian ministry is. But isn't it fascinating that Paul gives us this amazing message, and then he just mentions, for I, which I am an ambassador in chains. He's an ambassador in chains. He wrote this while he was in prison. So his circumstances, his conditions, didn't affect his attitude. His attitude never changed. Why? Because he was in Christ. It's awesome. It's beautiful. So you're Colossians 4.2. I'm working on a sermon on this verse right now, on verses four, 2 through 4. I'll probably preach it next week. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with what? An attitude of thanksgiving, an attitude of gratitude. I've had that sermon on my desk for three or four weeks now, and I just keep adding to it because it's such a, an awesome message. So I'll probably dive into that one next week. Now, I haven't gone into much scripture today because it's a different kind of sermon, but I really want to give you biblical examples of a good attitude, a biblical attitude, a godly attitude versus a bad attitude that's destructive. And we get that very clearly in First and Second Samuel. What I want you to look at today is we're going to consider the contrast between David's attitude, which was an attitude of worship, praise, righteousness, joy. And then Saul's attitude, which was an attitude of jealousy, spite, anger, malice, resentment, and hatred. And just look at the contrast in these two biblical figures, David and Saul, in these portions of Scripture. These are rather long, so I'm going to put them on the screen so it's easy for you guys to see them. And I'll read through them. First, let's look at 1 Samuel 18, uh, 5 through 9. Here we go. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this, uh, angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can, 
Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. So what do we learn in that? We learn that that event, that jealousy, affected Saul for the rest of his life. He was so jealous of David that it started corrupting his attitude from this moment forward. Ask yourself, what in my life have I ever experienced that has done that? Resentments, people that have done me wrong, whatever it is. Sometimes the greatest damage people do to us is not the act that they carried out against us. It's the damage that we let them carry out in our minds because we carry it year after year after year. It's not worth it. And it destroyed Saul. And it will destroy anybody that lets it happen. <clears throat> now let's look at 1 Samuel 24, 1 through 11. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now he's hunting for David now. He wants to destroy David because he's jealous of him and he thinks David's going to take everything from him. And David's been nothing but loyal to him. So he says, now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. So he goes in the cave, and David and his men are in there. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, no one perceived that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. Now, this is an especially fascinating portion of Scripture here, because what do we see David's concern? What's the main concern? He doesn't want to harm the Lord's anointed. You see, he knew that God had made Saul king, and he didn't want to go against that anointing. And what's fascinating about this, and really we'll get into this more when I do preach on Romans 13, Saul was, was, was trying to destroy David, but Saul could have been still leading as he should, you see? 
So David didn't want to disrupt that. But the main point I'm trying to make is what we're, what we could learn from this is David's concern was for the cause of the gospel. I will not take revenge on this man, even though he's trying to destroy me because I'm concerned about what it will do in the cause of the gospel, what it might do to stain the name of Jesus Christ. That's the lesson we can learn from this. And I can, I can delve into that more deeply, but it's a fascinating portion of scripture to really consider. Now let's look at Samuel, uh, 20, second Samuel 22, one through four. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So he had faith. He didn't try to take it into his own hands. He relied on the Lord to protect him and deliver him. And the Lord did. Delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Because he was faithful, because David relied on the Lord to care for him and take care of him, he was able later in life to write psalms of praise like this, to praise the Lord because he could look back over a life of faithfulness. And David failed many times. There were times he was unfaithful. There were times he sinned. But the overall pervading path of his life was striving to be concerned with the cause of the Lord. And because of that, he could look back and go, look at what the Lord's delivered me through. Look at what he's helped me through. And I will praise him in this way. And again, anybody that's been in ministry, true ministry for any amount of time, understands what I'm saying. I've had situations, like I said, where I've been so tested and pushed to the limit, but the Lord brings me through. And then that's what gives you strength moving forward. That's what enables you to praise the, the Lord more. That's what strengthens your faith and deepens your belief later on, because you look back at those things. That's what David did. So I'm going to ask the question, how do we control and maintain a proper positive attitude in spite of all the things that I talked about at the beginning that are going on around us? The answer is simple. It's what I've been sharing. Consider David's example and all the other examples that we are given in the Bible. That's what God's word is for. That's one of the purposes. That's why he gives us his word, because it helps us maintain the attitude that we need to have. Look at Psalm 1, 1 through 3. David answers my question perfectly. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, those that counsel according to the world, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does... He prospers. David is giving us a picture of the believer who has the proper attitude grounded and founded on the rock, Jesus Christ. This is a picture of the attitude that we have and the blessings that we have because of it. So how do we control and maintain a proper positive attitude? Psalm 1, 1 through 3 answers that question. 
folks, pray for inspiration and motivation in all that you undertake. Cut out negativity and negative influence like a cancer. Kill it as if it were a vampire. Be yourself. Live adventurously. Go farther each day than the day before. That should just be the Christian life. How can I do more today than I did yesterday in the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What can I do to help expand the kingdom? What can I do to push back against the darkness? If you get knocked down, get up and then keep moving forward. Read about Joseph and all the guys down through biblical history that went through horrendous trials and challenges, but the Lord brought them through and put them in a better place on the other side. Fill your life with what influences your attitude in a healthy, positive way, whether that be people, entertainment, books, whatever it is. Test everything. It says test the spirits. That doesn't just mean test it and say, well, this guy preaches this and it's against scripture, so it's a false teaching. That's a way of testing. But another way of testing is this movie that I'm watching or this book that I'm reading or this person that I'm listening to, is it affecting me in a positive attitude that's Christ-like? Or is it drawing me away from that? Test everything. So again, I'll ask the question. An attitude of gratitude sounds cliche, but is it biblical? Absolutely. And why an attitude of gratitude? How can you be negative if you are thankful? If you have gratitude, you've already defeated most of your enemies. Most of the negativity, most of the things that attack you are done away with if you have gratitude. This is why in the Recovery Reformation thing, people have so much trouble understanding me because I get contacted weekly by people saying, what program should I work? What program do you have? How do we buy it? Whatever. So there's no program. It's the gospel. The reason I hound that point through Recovery Reformation is because if someone truly understands the gospel, they'll realize you don't need anything beyond that. That's why I tell people all the time, if your church is looking to Alcoholics Anonymous, Celebrate Recovery, the 12 Steps, or whatever it is, to help the addicted and the alcoholic, go find another church. Or expose to them the error that they're making, and if they won't repent and go back to the gospel, then go find another church. That's just the way it has to be, because the gospel is that powerful, you see? And the gospel is what will help us maintain a proper attitude. Let's look at these verses that I'll close with. Colossians 2.7, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. 1 Timothy 4.4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. That's a great one for these times. We have a kingdom which cannot be shaken. The world's being shaken right now. People are freaking out because they're being so just inundated with fear, fear, death, infections. So many lies being fed to them, leading them astray. They don't know which way is the truth, you see? But we get to stand on Hebrews 12, 28, that says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, this world won't affect us. Our attitude will not change, you see? Praise the Lord for that. What an awesome message that is. Father, 
Folks, if you'd like to reach me, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at thewayministrychurch at outlook.com. Uh, if you'd like to support the ministry, we need it very much. We have seven churches now in Kenya. One of those churches doesn't even have a building yet. Um, we need to expand our main headquarters church because people are joining constantly. Uh, I just found out today, I forgot when I was there, the land uh, on the new church where we don't have a building is actually directly across from the Catholic headquarters for that portion of Kenya. And the pastor told me this morning that people are actually <coughs> coming across the street and joining his services, even though they're meeting outside and it's having an effect. So that's how God's working in Kenya. We need a lot of help. Um, if things go as planned, I hope to return in September, the end of September on my next trip to Kenya. There's so much work to do there with water projects. Um, I really want to spend time with the pastors again, uh, delving deeper into doctrine. Uh, I'm going to be teaching, taking more teaching materials uh, that my friend Matt's going to help me with, Matt Slick of Karm.org, uh, to help really ground the pastors in Reformed theology. So there's, there's a ton of work there to do. Um, I could be there full time and, and it would take me years to get everything done. But the Lord has just opened an amazing door there. Um, I want to continue to reach out through Recovery Reformation and reach everybody that we can online. So uh, just consider donating if you can. Uh, if you want to go to our website, it's the way, the letter R122.org. And let's close in prayer and then we will sign off. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to preach today. We thank you for those that have uh, joined with us and have uh, become a part of this message. And Lord, I just ask that you would bless each and every one with the understanding of what it is to have and maintain a proper attitude, to have the eyes of Christ and to understand that we are your body and the gospel goes forth through us. And we need to have an attitude that serves the cause and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we go into the coming week, I ask that you'd open the door for more opportunities for the gospel, that we'd be able to make a stand boldly for the cause of the gospel and that your name would be praised and honored in all that we do in Jesus name. Amen. All right, you guys, thank you so much for watching. We will be back here next Sunday at 12 o'clock, 12 noon, Mountain Time. God bless. <laughs>